Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. I'd like to read just the first portion here for the context of the sermon, and I'm beginning in verse 9, and I'll read just to 13. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Let me just continue to read. It's too good. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. And you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top. And set a door of the ark in the side of it. And you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of the flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female, of the birds of their kind after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And as for you, take for yourself some of all the food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. And thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, and so he did. Let's pray. Father, this section of Scripture, um, inadequacy doesn't even come close uh, to what I feel to preach this, and yet at the same time, you've given me a charge to do so. I thank you for your word, how clear it is. And I pray, Father, that you would aid me today to open it up and, and explain it in a way that will be able to be understood and grasped, even from the children in our midst as well as the adults. And Father, that you would receive all glory, that you would do the work in our hearts that you so long to do, that we would be open and allowing you to do that work. And we thank you for that in advance, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we stressed that verse 8 comes before verse 9. I don't know if you remember that, but um, many get it missed and mixed up. Verse 9 
It shows the description of the man who found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. Noah was righteous, he was blameless, and he walked with God. But that is not before verse 8, which reads, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So let us remember that God's grace preceded Noah's righteousness. And God's grace precedes anything we can do that is righteous. I think it was Luther that referred to our righteousness as being alien righteousness. It means it's outside of ourselves. It's nothing to do with us or what we do. It's all of God. Now, Noah exemplified obedient faith. The New Testament book of Hebrews reveals that by his obedient faith, Noah became an heir of righteousness. In Hebrews 11.7, we read, By faith, Noah, being warned of God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, that means obedience, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. And of course, Hebrews 11 is a faith chapter, right? Now, it's important to understand that Noah's faith was not a mere leap into the dark. He didn't just all of a sudden decide to believe. Faith isn't blind. Rather, Noah's faith and all genuine biblical faith is the proper human response to God's revealed truth. It's the way we respond to what God reveals to us from the scripture. It includes the elements of hearing the truth, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ, believing the truth that we heard, and then obeying or acting upon that truth that has been believed. It's not enough just to believe. There needs to be action too. Your belief will result in action, contrary to some's thinking. Noah's faith looked like this. First, Noah heard God's warning of the coming judgment. God told him, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, and I want you to make yourself an ark, verses 13 and 14, chapter 6. And without God's clear and gracious words of warning and instruction, Noah could not have known what God required of him. But God did warn and instruct Noah, just as he does today throughout the scripture. His word is for all people. Repent and believe in the Lord for salvation. There's coming a time when the door is going to shut on us. And we need to be ready for that. Secondly, not only did Noah hear God's warning, Noah believed God. He believed the words of God. No one in Noah's day would have experienced massive flooding or even rain. Because from the creation of the earth until that day, the earth was watered by mist, according to Genesis 2.5. But even though God was about to do something entirely unique, Noah believed that the events as yet unseen, according to Hebrews 11.7, would actually take place. And he acted upon what God had revealed to him. 
Noah believed God because he trusted that God's word is true and that he was able to accomplish all he willed to do. Beloved, when you think back to when you were not a believer and to when you heard the gospel, I've had um, some of my own dear relatives say to me, oh, that's just too simple. You mean I can just believe and that's it and it's all done? I said, oh, there's more, but yeah, just believe. No, 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 that's, that's just too simple, but that's the gospel. Believe and you will be saved. In Noah's day, all they had to believe was what Noah was preaching in righteousness, that there was a flood coming, but they did not. Finally, Noah not only heard God's warning and believed God, he then obeyed God because he built an ark exactly as God had instructed. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. You see that in 6.22. Hebrews 11.7 adds, By faith, Noah, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. The great value that Noah placed on God's word compelled him to obey. And he obeyed for 120 years. Genuine faith obeys immediately, completely, and without challenge, and I would say without restraint. You just keep believing. That's genuine faith. It is important to understand that Noah was called righteous because of God's grace and of his faith that he exercised in what God said and did in his heart, not by building the ark or any other human work that he performed. That didn't save him. He would have never built the ark if he didn't believe first, and he would have never believed if the grace of God hadn't acted upon him. That's why verse 8 is important, and it comes before verse 9. Now, Noah's prolonged obedience did express the reality of his faith. Faith without works is dead. Got it? Faith without works is dead. Don't ever get it backwards. Works and then faith. No, it's faith first. But works will continue on. Think of your life before you were a believer. And now that you are a believer, not perfectly, but you are performing good works which have been prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 2.10. Just think of that. He's already prepared the things that you're to be about. And the only way that you can know what those things are that you're supposed to be doing is by confessing your sin, keeping a clean slate with him, and then just walking with him. And you will discover what those things are. Genesis 6.10 introduces Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And they're going to be the great grandsires of all the human population after the flood. Verse 11 shows the contrast between Noah and the rest of the world through the eyes of God. Let's look at it. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, even though Noah preached righteousness for 100 years, Luke 17, 27 showed their response and God's judgment as seen in, in verse 7, where he says that he is going, 
he's, he's repented of creating man. I'm sorry that I ever made them. The people of Noah's age and Noah's day, they aged and they drank and they married wives and they were given in marriage until cutoff date. Cutoff date. Beloved, there's so many people, maybe some right here today, that are just living their lives like everything's just fine. Everything's normal. Yeah, things are getting a little bit more violent. You gotta, now you've got to carry a nine mil. But, you know, things are okay. I got my nine mil. I got my concealed carry. I'm safe. I'm good. And then other people are completely oblivious even to that. They think it's wonderful. You know, it's never been better in America. Um, wow. But the way of man, unregenerate man, men who do not know the Lord, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, I believe it is, that they are living without God and without hope in the world. And so consequently, they're living their lives the best they can, getting as much as they can, taking it to themselves, as many toys as they can amass, the bigger home, the nicer things, and so forth and so on. And they're just, they're plateaued. They're just living for today. That's exactly the way it was in the days of Noah. Until the day Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Not a very enticing evangelistic message, is it? But it's the truth. And people need to hear the truth. You can't just go on as though nothing... It's happening as though everything is just fine. It's not fine. You are separate from your creator because of sin that you commit. And you need to rectify that situation. And it only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So God would blot out man whom he created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for he was sorry that he had even made them. And that's where that glorious verse comes in. 6, 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The severest judgment of God known to man to date was tempered by divine mercy that matched the severity of his judgment in wonderful, undeserved pardon and safety and preservation. Albeit for eight souls, it's true, just eight, but it was there. Now, I want to talk a little bit, and this is going to get a little bit didactic, a little bit teachy, but we need to understand some of these things. I'm not even going to go nearly into the depth that I could have gone, because this could take weeks to talk about the ark and the flood and everything, but I want to talk about the ark. The Hebrew word used in this portion for ark is tebah, tebah, and it doesn't mean a boat or a ship. They did us a disservice when they... The translators all translated into English, ark, because we've all seen the little ark with the animals hanging out of it and stuff. That's not it. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like that box. In fact, the closest English might come to the meaning for tabah is box. God said to Noah, Noah, I want you to build a box. Okay? Get that in your mind. The same word is used to describe the vessel that Moses' mother used to rescue him from Pharaoh's intent to kill all male babies in Exodus 1. Now, now here is an important fact to remember about this Hebrew word. It doesn't include 
sides. Because when I hear the word ark, maybe it's because I've been a believer for so long, I think big, right? It doesn't mean that. It doesn't have the idea of size here, but rather the intent of the use is the main idea of an ark, this box. It's the context around it. Now, we also have in the Old Testament the Ark of the Covenant, right? So, do we look at that like a ship? No, we look at that more like a box, a container, right? But, it's a different Hebrew word, aron. And it's a word used to describe the coffin that Joseph was buried in. So, it is a container. It is, I suppose we could say it's like a box. It is a container, but it's a different word. And... The Ark of the Covenant is that word. So Joseph's coffin, the Ark of the Covenant, different words, but we use that term for them. A term used over 100 times in the Old Testament. And I say this because the usage which the Ark of the Covenant, and it being the same word for Joseph's coffin, it, it is a container for something that's precious. Okay, So I suppose we could have used it for the Ark that Noah was in or the basket that, that Moses was in. But he doesn't. He uses the term box. There's a reason because of this. And it's what its purpose was. The only difference between Tabah and Aron comes in the intended use of the container. The Tabah was used in instance of Noah and Moses to float on water, important, and deliver its occupants alive. That's very different than the Ark of the Covenant and Joseph's coffin. In fact, Joseph was dead. But when it came to containers, Aron, it had nothing to do with water or survival, and they were just containers or a chest used to house or protect something that was precious. The tabab was used in the instance of Noah and Moses to float on water and deliver its occupants. Now, God had a plan. And in the midst of his severe judgment about to come upon the whole world at that time, he planned to use a tabah, a box... For safety and preservation. That was his intent. In both instances of Noah and Moses, the prime element of its purpose was safety and preservation. You remember with Moses, Pharaoh had commanded them to kill all male children. And Moses' mother, acting on God's will, made him a little box and floated him on water and preserved him and saved him. And this is important that you understand this concept because all through here, you have to think of safety and preservation, safety and preservation. Now the size, this thing was not a small little vessel. The Bible says that the ark was to be 300 cubits and 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits tall. Now in our ears, a cubit might seem like a small measurement, right? I think like a unit of measurement maybe. be... Um, like a centimeter or something like, no. A cubit was more than that. By doing some research, I discovered that a common cubit was considered to be probably 18 inches by the majority of uh, biblical scholars. 18 inches. And, and that was a measurement used by the Egyptians and Babylonians and the Hebrews at this time. And the measurement was based on the length of a man's forearm from the tips of his fingers to his elbow. That's a cubit. Okay? 
Now, this makes much sense to me who worked with tribal people for many years in Indonesia because they used to measure the size of a tree by a ha, H-A. And when we were wanting to build a house in the tribe, we had some sawyers come in, and uh, they're from the Philippines, from, uh, I forget the name of the island, but uh, closer to Mindanao. And, and they said, well, how big do you want the house? And I told them and everything, and they said, they talked to the tribal people, and the tribal people said, well, you need to find some trees that are eight ha. A ha is from fingertip all the way across to fingertip. So you're talking eight of these around. And that's what they sent them into the jungle to find trees like that. And so people measured with their bodies. That's how they used to do measurements. And I thought that was interesting that a cubit is basically from the fingertips to the elbow. And the length is actually 450 feet long. The width is 75 feet wide, and the height is 45 feet high. Now, it was the largest vessel, I want you to mark this down, it was the largest vessel built up until the modern age. This box, okay? In fact, it was not until 1858, 1858, that a vessel of greater length was constructed, and it was called the Great Eastern, and it was 692 feet uh, long, 83, 83 feet wide, and 30 feet high. Now, some of you have been to Ken Ham's uh, Ark Counter, I think. How many have been there from here? Oh, my gosh, all you people. <laughs> I, I feel, I don't know, maybe I'm just too welded to this pulpit. I, I don't go anywhere. I I go and teach sometimes, but I never go and visit these places. I haven't been to the Holy Land either yet. It's terrible. I got to get there. You've been there, haven't you? Leo's been there. He's from Manila. Come on. We got to do this. Anyways, so you've probably been there and, you know, you can give testimony to your friends of what you saw there because I'm sure it was marvelous, a marvelous experience, and I'm looking forward to doing it sometime. In 2022, 4.2 million people had visited that ark, the ark encounter. That's really encouraging because all those people are going to be much more solid in their faith by that experience because their eyes actually saw. We're kind of like that as human beings. Now, with the measurement of the box being what I have just stated, the footprint of the container would be 12 times the footprint of an average house, 33,750 square feet an average American house. (laughs) Having three floors or decks would come to a total floor space of 101,250 square feet inside of this box. That's more than 20 basketball courts. It's more than the storage space of 300 railroad boxcars. That's a lot of storage space. But remember, this massive box was designed to float on top of the water, not to be maneuvered to a specific designation. It didn't have a rudder, and Noah wasn't like up front with a wheel, you know. No, he was batting down, just holding on for dear life, right, as it floated on the flood waters. So, 
There are two materials that were used for this box. One was gopher, gopher wood, and the other was pitch. Now, the assumed wood to be used was called gopher, which is a transliteration because Moses didn't even know what gopher wood was. We don't know what it is. There's a lot of, a lot of ink that has been spilled trying to define what that wood is, but the Bible just says it's gopher wood, and you don't see it anywhere else. Just gopher wood. We do know it's wood. The truth is, nobody really knows what kind of wood it was. Okay? Now, the word for pitch is spelt almost like gopher. It's kafir. Kafir. And it's frightfully close to that word used for gopher wood. And though the English word pitch is used, the Hebrew word carries the meaning of being overlaid. We think of pitch, I think of like sap or, or something to fill the cracks. It may have been that. We don't know. The word itself that's used is it talks about a covering, and it's used in other Old Testament contexts for atonement. Atonement means to cover. You do realize that, right? All the Old Testament people experienced atonement by going through those sacrifices that God had established, right, with the tabernacle and the, and the temple. They always did sacrifices. Those sacrifices did not remove their sins. That's why they had to keep doing it every year. They merely atoned for them, covered them over, waiting for Messiah to come and remove them completely. So that's what that word means. And some people have said maybe it's overlay of skins or some type of overlay, but I'm sticking with pitch. I think they probably used sap or something from trees that was just lost, lost contact with. They didn't know. And so they used that word. But it's difficult to be dogmatic on this stuff. Inside the ark, Henry Morris, who I love, uh, he's a creation scientist. He's written a lot of books on this. And others have reasoned that the animals would have taken up one whole deck. There are three decks. He says, so that would leave a lower deck for supplies, the middle deck for the animals, and the top deck left for Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their, their wives. Now, of course, this is all speculation because the scripture just doesn't tell us these things. But I'm sure that, um, that Ken Ham has laid it out very properly because he wanted to be biblical. And it's, it's filled with rooms. This ark is filled with rooms. Now, we do know that the rooms were designed by God, verse 14, and the word used for rooms every place else in the Old Testament is interpreted and translated as nests. A nest, like a bird nest, a nest. And why that's interesting <coughs> is because it indicates that, that these nests were possibly contoured for the guests that would be staying in these nests. Again, speculation, but it makes sense. Many surmise that the animals would have nested very quickly upon hearing and feeling the ferocity of the rains of the flood. And I wondered myself, and this is pure speculation, I mean, bears sleep during the winter, right? Could God not have caused them to hibernate so they wouldn't have to have eaten as much? And You know, the sky's the limit with speculation. I could write a book and become famous. 
But it wouldn't be from the scripture, it'd be from my own thinking. But it's interesting, these animals, the two by twos, they all had their nests. And they stayed in these nests. Now there is a window also in verse 16. And interestingly, the term for window, in most other instances used in the Old Testament, means noon or noontime. Which I would say, light. Now, it's clear that it's to be one cubit, that's 18 inches, from the top. This is perplexing. What is there, like a porthole? (laughs) 18 inches for the top? And it doesn't say 18 inches square. It says 18 inches from the top. So I don't know what Ken did with this. Did he have like a catwalk running around the top of the... Huh? Okay, so an area that was open, 18 inches at the very top. That's what I envisioned it to be. Uh, that would let light in and so forth. Now, it's not the same as window that is used in other places like 8.6. When Noah, you remember, uh, at the end of the flood in, uh, in uh, Genesis 8.6, it says he opened the window and let the dove out. First, he let the raven out, right? And the raven didn't come back. That's a totally different word from the word in, in verse 16. And so there's a reason for that, right? Because it's a totally different thing. But we don't know what it was. And again, I may be causing more questions, so let's get a trip together this next summer, 2024, and we'll all go down and see what Ken Ham did with that that ark. So those were two different things, very different things. Um, It seems unlikely that there would have been one single portal 18 inches square in the top of the ark. That doesn't make sense to me. So here's the thing. There was a door in the side. And this is pay dirt for me, your pastor. I love the door in the ark. There was only one, only one door. It was in the side of the ark. And as we read, all the animals, which in most marvelous way, came to Noah. Have you ever wondered how he got all those animals? Would he, he just travel all over looking for, you know, and then he find an animal and like, okay, where's your mate? Right? No. God did this for him. God brought these animals to him. It says so in 620. And Noah and his three sons and their wives, eight persons, were in the ark. And we read in 716, I want you to go there and just look at it. It says, those that entered, male and female of all flesh, and Noah and his family and his sons and their family, entered the ark Entered as God had commanded him. God said, come, Noah. Come, everyone. And it says that Yahweh closed the door behind him. That, that is so powerful of a verse. Because God locked him inside. It was God who shut that door. And it's so important that we understand this. The fact that Yahweh shut the door is directly related to us and Jesus Christ. But more on that in just a little bit. So in that ark then, these eight souls are in there. All the animal life that God wanted to preserve on earth are in there, and they were all safe and secure. Eight persons, and Yahweh closed it. 
And the animals in their respective nests and the families in their quarters. And Yahweh waited seven days. Look at 7.10. It says it came about. Okay, so they're all in there. Uh, Verse 9 says, There went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. They went into the ark, everyone, God shut the door, and there were seven days. Now, why did that take place before the flood came? I'm surmising again. They had to get settled in, right? I mean, I I can't imagine what it was like. But seven days they were in the ark before the flood waters came. But they did come. It says, and then the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Now, I want to talk to you how this relates to us because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is telling about the Israelites' uh, mistakes and their time in the wilderness and how they had failed God so often. And he says, by extension, this applies to us, he says, now I want you to understand, you people in Corinth, okay, you believers, that these things happened as examples for us, tupas. It's a Greek word, tupas. Tupas is like an imprint that's left from a stamp or from a hammer. If I hit the pulpit real hard with a hammer, there'd be a mark left here. That would be a tupas, okay? And that word is a word that we get our word type or figure from, type. And it's very interesting that Paul says, now these things that happen to them in the wilderness are an example for us. And in Romans 5.14, we see Adam is portrayed as a tupas, a type of him who was to come. That's Romans 5.14, same word. And the ark is a type of Jesus Christ. The ark is a type of Jesus Christ. So let me explain that to you. In the same way that God saved Noah's family who entered the ark from the judgment of the flood, God now saves all who are in Christ. Important words, in Christ. All outside of Christ will experience God's eternal wrath, just as everyone outside of the ark were swept away. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, you can turn there, says this. Who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So we got the context. Peter's referring back to the days of Noah. During the construction of the ark. Now these unregenerate people were all waiting. And Noah's building this ark. Noah didn't actually build the ark. He was probably this massive chieftain. And he had many sons of Seth building that ark for him. But during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is only eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, one word in the Greek. Corresponding to that, do you know what the word is? Antitipos. Anti is a Greek preposition that means over against. It's a comparison and Typos is the word that we were just using for a type. So, corresponding to that, corresponding to what? Corresponding to the eight souls going inside the ark and being saved from everything. Corresponding to that, now get this, baptism now saves you. Oh, get Pastor Linetti out of that pulpit. 
Good grief. You just told us it's all by grace, and now you're saying baptized saves you. No. God's word says baptized saves you. Baptism saves you. What? Then he goes on to explain. Very next word is not, not the removal of dirt from flesh, but an appeal to, a, to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now I'm going to break this verse down for you so you don't err. Baptism does not save us or forgive our sins as some religions teach. Here's what it means. When verse 21 says the corresponding to that or the antitype to Noah being saved in the ark and the eight that were in the ark, the word corresponding can also be translated type or antitype. And the ark which saved Noah's family from God's judgment through water prefigures a future baptism. You say, I'm still confused, pastor. You're still saying baptism saves you. I am. The word of God says it. But you need to understand what words mean. Peter makes it clear that he's not talking about water. There's no water here except for the flood. He says that that baptism is not referring to the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here it is. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are what? Baptized into him. You say, okay, now you really threw me a, a, a loop because what do you mean baptized into him? Well, you got to go back to the word baptized. What does it mean? In English, it's transliterated from the Greek baptizo, which literally means to place into. And it was used of garments that wanted to be dyed. So you'd have muslin, which is kind of a tan color or a cream color, and you wanted to have a beautiful red dress made out of that muslin. What they would do is they take that material and they baptize it in red dye and put it in the red dye vat. They did not sprinkle it, because that's kind of like (laughs) tie-dye. She wanted a pure red dress, so they baptized it. They placed it into the vat. Okay? They baptized it, and they pulled it out. Now, just because I want to check my resources all the time, my wife is part Greek. I married two conquerors. She's Greek. She's from Sparta, a little place right next to Sparta. So she's Spartan. But she's also Italian. But we went over to the Greek church over on on Summit Avenue, St. George's, Greek church. And I talked to one of the Greek uh, pastors there. And I said, what does baptize mean? He said, what do you mean, what does baptize mean? I said, what does baptize mean? In, In your understanding of Greek language. He says, it means to place into something, to put under something. And then he gave me the whole thing with the muslin. I said, okay, I'm just checking it out. That's coming from a modern-day Greek guy that understands Greek, okay? So suffice it to say, when we believe Jesus Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that we receive certain gifts, that we speak in tongues now and can heal people and so forth and so on, because some churches teach that. The baptism by the Holy Spirit means that you who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins have been taken and placed into the body of Jesus Christ. You say, well, that sounds wonderful, Lord. Uh, Pastor, what, do you have anything to back that up? Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, because I don't want to say anything that's beyond the scripture here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we will read verses 12 and 13. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So he's talking about the universal church here. Everybody that is believed is in the body of Jesus Christ. Then he explains it in verse 13. For by one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, we were all what? Baptized into one body. Baptizo, same word. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. So, I state my case. What Peter is trying to say here is just as those people, ate though they be, were in the ark and preserved and safe, so those who are in Jesus Christ are safe and preserved in the same way. That's what Peter's intent was of that passage. Even as the earth before the flood was buried under the waters as God's wrath just was unleashed, so too the Spirit of Christ through David called out, all your breakers and waves have rolled over me. Psalm 42. At the cross, all the breakers and waves of God's wrath passed over Jesus Christ. And because of that, the blessed consequence... Not one of them remains to pass over you, believer. He's taken it all. When he got done, he said, what? It is finished. There's nothing left. He absorbed everything. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. We're in the ark. It's a new one. His name is Jesus Christ. He drank the cup and endured it to the end so that we would not have to do so. My sin, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Taken from it as well with my soul, right? (laughs) Do you know what you have in Christ Jesus? Are you walking in that kind of confidence and victory? Noah and the inhabitants of the ark, they just floated beyond the reach of the raging storms put there by God himself. Now, if God is for us, who can be against us? Just as as God said to Noah, enter the ark, come, enter the ark. Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Come, come to me, all you that labor, and I will give you rest. In the ark, all was safe and life was preserved. In Christ, all sins are forgiven and all is safe and eternal life is preserved. It's not only preserved, we're told that it's reserved in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, and it won't fade away. After Noah was, and all who obeyed the divine call to come, went into that ark, Yahweh shut them in. What more security could Noah have desired? 
Do you think Noah looked at Mrs. Noah and said, I don't know, this is going to be tough. When he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the keys of David opens, no one will shut. And get this, and he who shuts, no one opens. We are so secure, we will make it to the end if you are truly in Christ. Can you see the simple parallel Yahweh secured with his own omnipotent hand by shutting the door? And God has sealed the believer's faith with the seal of the Holy Spirit. It's a done deal, people, if you have truly repented and trusted Christ. So the believer can cry with with Paul, what can separate us from the love of God? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing which includes you, sinner that you are, but forgiven sinner. You can't take yourself out of Christ. God put you in there, and then he sealed it by the Holy Spirit. Oh, beloved, who can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ, Jesus our Lord? He's our ark. He's our ark. Now, who could have touched Noah inside that ark? What wave could have broken over and overwhelmed that pitch and that gopher and destroyed those that were within, prescribed by God? And so it's the same for the believer. What can touch you? Who by faith have been baptized into Christ? What enemy is there that will overwhelm you? What circumstance? Loss of a loved one. Loss of a job. Loss of a house. Loss of your life. They're outside the ark. You're safe inside. The death of Christ has swallowed up all that would offend, and it's buried with him in his death. But then, Peter also referred to the resurrection. Don't forget the resurrection. I've shared with you, I did so many ordination councils down at Grace Church. Grace Community Church, master seminary students wanting to be ordained. And I'd say, please share the gospel with me. (laughs) I kind of got a reputation from doing that. And they would share the gospel with me. The death and burial of Jesus Christ, it's covered all our sins. And and they totally forget the resurrection. And it was so much fun for me to say, does the resurrection play into the gospel at all? And they go, oh. I just loved doing that. It was fun. I knew they knew that, but they were focusing on the death. Don't forget the resurrection, because the passage in Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, his resurrection is God's pointed exclamation mark of approval and acceptance of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice to pay sin. It's like God saying, it's finished, done, our plan is complete, and we're safe, and we're preserved in Christ. It is on the basis of his righteousness that he receives us, sinners all. And it's our forever confidence as we draw near to him. Now, just to close this message off, are you in the ark? Are you inside or are you outside? Let's keep it simple, because if we confess, all of us are just pretty simple. And you got the picture of the ark, where there's safety, 
preservation of life. And you've got the picture of being in Christ, which is a type. The ark is a type of that. Are you inside or are you out? If you've admitted that your sin separated you from him and that you've turned to God and humbly turning away from your own way of living and turned and cried out to God to save you, to forgive you for your sins, trusting that Jesus' death and resurrection paid for all of that, then you are in Christ. You are. You're inside the ark. It's okay. You say, but I'm still struggling with sin, Pastor. Well, welcome to the club. And remember, before you were saved, you didn't struggle with sin. You looked to commit sin in new ways. You liked your sin. Now you struggle with it because you're righteous. There's something inside you called the Holy Spirit that just doesn't mix with that sin anymore. The door is shut. And by God himself, and it's only going to be open to deposit you on the shores of heaven, you're safe, you're secure, and your life has been preserved. Noah, at the end of the flood, I believe God opened the door. I don't think there was a latch on that thing. (laughs) And he came out, and he was in a new world. Unlike the world before the flood. Beloved, that's what's going to happen to us. The Bible is so clear. One day, we're going to see him as he is, and we will be like him. Now, this is something even kids can understand. Are you guys inside the ark, which is Jesus Christ? Or are you just following mom and dad, coming to church, not thinking about these things? Because you're not too young to ask Jesus to forgive you for your sins so that you can be in the ark, which is Jesus Christ, and be safe and secure and know that you'll go to heaven. And that's good for adults too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love your word. Your word is so clear. You give us pictures all through the Old Testament, a foreshadowing of the realities that are to come. And then you fulfill those realities in the New Testament, but tell us there's yet more to come where they're really fulfilled in entirety. Oh God, we look forward to that day that we see our Lord and Savior as he is so that we will be like him. But Father, as we are living on this earth and we still have this sin that dwells within us and is a problem to us and the flesh And the world around us tempting us, Lord, let us remind ourselves, if we're in the ark, we are safe. We are safe. And let us encourage one another with those words we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.